And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And it's uh, it's wonderful to welcome you again, Sarah. It's, uh, the, I think the last time you actually had on a full podcast was right after A Song for a New Day had come out. And, of course, that hit exactly at the right moment. No near-future writer has had that kind of luck or bad luck. I don't know which. So needless to say, everybody is on edge wondering, what have you got in store for us this year? <laughs> right. And, and what you've got are brain implants, which is even <laughs> scarier than whole. I mean, last year, I remember this, uh, that just about when Song for a New Day came out, I was reading about the Whitney Houston hologram tour, and I thought, this is happening as the book comes out. Uh, I'm hoping I'm hoping that, that this pilot business is a little bit further off in the near future. I'm hoping so, too. I'm not sure that Elon Musk agrees with me. Uh, I, I, think well, I, don't mind, I don't mind his having a brain implant. No, no, no. He's ready to go on, on yeah. uh, brain implants for others. So Yeah. So, Probably for uh, others, yeah, right? Yeah, set, set your clock for for six months out. If if my timeline is <laughs> my timeline from uh, a song for a new day works, then six months out is what you're looking at. Well, actually, with a couple of years perspective on song for a new day, what's been the most su- surprising thing about it for you looking back, since it's now well and truly a part of the world? I, I don't, surprising is a funny word because I didn't expect. I didn't honestly expect any of it. I, I uh, it wasn't meant to come true. It was. It was a very, very handy what if. Um, I was amazed to the you know it all made sense to me. Like restaurants behind plexiglass is what would happen next, and yeah. uh, concerts in bubbles is what would happen next, and uh, companies companies taking advantage of their better technology to bring you better online concerts is what would happen. So, so I feel like, I feel like the big, the big surprise was the one was the big thing that I got wrong, which was, which was masks, I guess. Mm -hmm. I just didn't, um, I didn't concentrate very much on the, the during in Mm -hmm. that book. There was a lot of before and a lot of after and, and I sort of skated through during. And so, so those were the parts that that I hadn't spent as much time on. So I guess the during was what surprised me. The time bendiness, the um, the way, uh, and um, I shouldn't have been surprised at this, but the way that uh, safety was politicized, mm-hmm. I shouldn't have been yeah. surprised by by you know people running the other way and somehow making vaccines, uh, you know. A political choice and and being considerate of others a, a political choice. I shouldn't have been surprised, and and yet I guess that's what I've been surprised by. I guess I, what struck me was seeing uh, Robert Fripp and Toya Wilcox talking about the book. That was, that was a bit cool. of a thing. That was pretty cool. I, I will say that was that was uh, totally unexpected and very cool. Do you think that the and I, I, I in many ways I don't, but do you think the pandemic particularly impacted how the book was received? Uh, I yeah yeah I probably did I think I think it was one of those books that had the right timing if it had been any later I think it would have felt a little bit uh, predatory isn't quite the the right word but but uh, it, it would have felt like it was opportunistic yeah um, mm-hmm. but I think the timing was right that that it just looked like I had a crystal ball which which worked out well I think I think that's what a lot of people have run with and I'm okay with that I noticed a number of people. 
at the time uh, of, of other books coming out. There were a number of novels about pandemics, of course, most of which had been written two or three years ago and it happened to come out. And, and they were being accused of being opportunistic when it was simply, in their case, bad luck that it looked like they were right. sort of cashing in on. Uh, the thing that strikes me as interesting as the difference between A Song for a New Day and, and um, the, we, are satellites. Uh, we Are Satellites is that they're the inverse of one another. In other words, Song for a New Day dealt with a set of social and economic and ecological circumstances that more or less gave a springboard to these technologies, which were barely science fictional. I mean, they were, there were versions of them out there. So you've got social conditions giving rise to a popular new technology. The new novel is exactly the reverse. You've got a popular technology giving rise to all kinds of social movements. Now that you say that, that is true. <laughs> uh, I, I I can't say that that was on purpose. That that looks like something that a that a reader has to notice for me. Um, but but you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in a way, that's the those are the only two choices you have in writing near future science fiction. So it's not as though there were too many options. Well, I mean, right. take a, I'm, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I mean, it, it's the it's just the what if. It, uh, yeah. I, it's where you springboard your what if from. I, but but yeah, you're right. Sorry, Jonathan. What were you going to say? What well, you What I was I was going to say one thing, but, but one thing that occurs to me thinking about We Are Satellites, which is basically for those who have not read the blurbs for the book, the story of the rise of a new technology that allows you to augment your ability to concentrate, to focus on multiple things, and it's done through a effectively a brain implant. And if I had one point that I, I struggled with in the book at all, it was the fact that. That people came to that pretty quickly in the story, don't they? they? They're like, they just, they're sort of like, yes, we're going to go with this. Rather than, I mean, it's the, the counterpoint point of view of not doing it is represented, but it seems like it just is skipped. Well, not skipped over. It's, it's just embraced almost in a way that I find almost a little difficult. It, it shows up. I, I, I for me, it, it worked because I, I figured. I had actually written a couple of stories about the first people to test it. Um, yeah. I have a couple of stories floating around about about like the the trials, um, which weren't uh, which weren't. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm a little searching for words tonight. Um, the The trials were not just uh, for fun, like that. It wasn't yeah. meant as a as a purely uh, uh, voluntary thing. Like they were thinking that it had it had very specific um, uses, mm-hmm. but then they also saw that it had this this possibility of being something that you could take to the mass market, and it's hard to you know it's hard to fight that once you start thinking about it as a company. And and I just figured if you get it to the influencers first, we can see how that works. Like, so mm-hmm. you get it to the to the people who are going to use it as a status symbol, and then it will go fairly quickly from there if it's affordable, if it seems like you need it. Um, mm. And I kept, what I, part of what I kept thinking of was the early iPod ads with uh-huh. the, the silhouette of the, of the person and the white uh, earbuds and the cord. And the person yeah. was really dancing against a, like a block color background and just the way that those sold the iPod. And then, and then you saw those everywhere and you knew that the person who was walking around with those, with those particular headphones on had an iPhone or an iPod, uh, even before the iPhone, the, um, the iPod mm-hmm. and, and, you know, the coolness that, that cool factor and everyone was getting it. And, you know, why does everyone have iPhones now? Like it's, 
it was just this direct lineage and sure. it did happen quickly. It did happen that it became the the phone, you know, and you can have a different one, but but most people don't. Well, I, I, was, I was teaching when the iPhone became kind of a, a brain supplement because, and I distinctly remember the two or three years during which I realized that when I was giving a lecture to my college classes, somebody would be in the back Googling everything I said to see if it was right. Um, and, I, and, and then they were just really proud to, to, to find something like that. But the thing that's behind that, and it's also a topic that you uh, touched upon in Song for a New Day, is, is what the corporations do when they get hold of a technology that may not be intended for, may not have originally been intended for, for, for this particular use. And I know you've done a lot of reading into uh, brain implants. I mentioned to you there was an article in this week's New Yorker where they've been using this, I guess, for some time to deal with Parkinson's and epilepsy. But the corporations are thinking, that's not a big enough market. Right. And that happens for a lot of people with epilepsy, that the um, if you if you think about the number of, the fact that there are so many different types of epilepsy and any one treatment will not necessarily work for, right. for two people, um, the the cost effectiveness is is off. And, and so there are constantly um, drugs being orphaned and abandoned right. and treatments, new treatments being developed. And then instead of epilepsy, it ends up being useful for something else. Um, and, and part of, part of the original thought behind this, this story was actually that I, uh, for my old day job, I was at a lecture, um, about, about new treatments for epilepsy. And they were talking about a brain implant that, oh, but this one had like, this one had a lot of promise, but then it didn't work out. But so we used it for this other thing instead. It's not good for epilepsy. And just that frustration that, that, um, would come from, from seeing one thing after another start to be developed, have potential and then be abandoned in that, in that New Yorker article. Um, the, the people, the people in this trial in Australia got, got, an implant that worked for many of them really well. And then the company went under and uh, they said, yeah. we're going to have to take these out because you, uh, we can't support them anymore. So if you got an infection or if you needed a new lead, we wouldn't be able to support it. We're not manufacturing it. And so these people who had had this change in their life actually oh, did have to go through the opposite and they didn't get counseling for it and they right. didn't, it just got ripped away from them. Um, so uh, yeah, all the, all the research on this, uh, I, I think I think I, I did my what ifs pretty well again. If I do yeah. say so myself. Well, actually, talking about what, well, a couple of things around the what if. The, the first thing I want to ask you is, where did this book start? Because there's always the feeling from the reader's perspective that things come out in a nice, orderly, logical way. You know, you've written your stories. Out comes the first novel. This is the second novel. Plainly, you wrote the second novel after the first novel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Where does we are satellites begin? What were the first sparks of the idea for you? Uh, it was, it was two things. One of which was that both of which were about 10 or 11 years ago. Uh, one was that lecture and one was right around that same time I was, uh, heading home from work and there were two schools on opposite sides of the street from each other at one of the intersections that I had to pass through. And, uh, one is a really, one is like a rich private school and one is a, a public school. And, as I sat at the light, um, 
a group of of boys from the private school, the like the the cross country team, came running across the street, and they were sort of not looking where they were going. They just all poured across the street in front of cars, behind cars, not caring who who had the green light. And one of them tripped over the median, and his like right in front of me. Um, and his friend just grabbed him without even looking, and and just kept running, kind of steadied him, and kept going. And so those that image is in the book. Um, mm-hmm. But those were both. Uh, 10 or 11 years ago. And I, I started it, I wrote a couple of short stories that got published here and there that, that dealt with, with this idea of this brain implant. And I, I wrote, I wrote a, a solid chunk of it. And then I didn't, I didn't have, a, there were a couple of things that I didn't have a sense of in terms of where I was going with it. Um, I needed, I needed to mature a little as a writer. I needed uh, to have the guts to do a couple of things that I didn't have yet. Um, I hadn't fully done my what ifs and, um, and I, I put it aside and I said, I, I, not out of a, not in a trunking way, just in a, I need to level up before I come back to this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put it aside and then when, uh, since this was a, a two book deal, when, when they said, what's your second book, I, I said, I'm ready, um, to myself, I'm ready to tackle that. And so mm-hmm. I explained that to them. And um, part of the deal was that I had to do a, an, an outline. And I'm not an outliner. I'm a, mm-hmm. I'm a full, full pantser. But uh, in that particular case, it turned out, and it turned out that an outline is a handy tool, which I had thought <laughs> of it as a, as a torture device. But it turns out that you can actually use it um, to help you make decisions um, and figure out where you're going, even if you don't follow it exactly. So, so uh, it did help me figure out what I was missing, which was everything, the, the middle, the end, um, and, also, um, and also David's perspective. I, yeah. I had put off writing David's perspective for a very long time. I thought that I could write the book without it. Um, so my, I think, I think, the first time I tried writing it, it was all Val's perspective. The second time I was playing with Sophie's perspective. And then, um, and then I decided the three of them. And then I realized you can't, you can't do three members of this family without the fourth. And his voice was the thing that actually unlocked the whole thing for yeah. me. I guess we should explain to listeners just for a second that there are four principal characters in the book, uh, a family, two mo- two mothers, and and their, their two children, a boy and a girl, and they divide down a, a simple line in the book, two who are enthusiastic and adopt the pilots, two who don't. Uh, and so that's, that's basically who are going through this adventure. So as you progress, anyway, you're going to say something to Gary. Well, I was going to say the daughter has no choice. I mean, she's not qualified for a pilot because of her uh, epilepsy. Uh, one of the interesting things, I, I don't know if this is in the book or it was in the Kindle version. There's, it, it's, it's, a, it's apparently a study version. There are questions for discussion at the end. Uh, and one of the questions was, which of the four characters do you identify with? Which I'd never thought about asking myself that question with any novel. Who do you think I identified with? Oh, you? Uh, yeah, Jonathan knows the, me better than the, Sarah. The, 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 turned, the, turned out the mom Val. who didn't get the pilot. The, the, the mom who age. didn't get the pilot. The one <laughs> Val who didn't get the pilot, who yeah. dis, who's who's distrustful, skeptical, and um, and also a teacher. Although she she's a track teacher, which kind of threw me out of that boat because that's never ever going to happen. But but nevertheless, uh, she, it's it's a very interesting set of characters. And it's one of the things I wanted to talk about. If we 
eliminated the science fiction elements altogether, that's a fascinating family. And it's a good family novel. And I found myself sympathizing with all the characters and especially uh, the one, uh, the one kind of stylistic experiment, I guess, consisted of writing those chapters of David because David's got this like stuttering mental response to his, his implant. And that has to come across in his language, uh, which could have gone over the top. You could have written him in a way that was very difficult to read, but we kind of, you kind of nailed it, I think. That was, that was so much fun to write him. It turned out like I I had put it off for so long and it, it turned out, um, I, I was really happy with how that turned out. And it was the, the way to write it was like, like I had to do it standing up and it was just this um, sort of throwing the sentences into the computer and um, reading it back. Uh, I, I did a, I did a reading of, of one of his chapters for ICFA this year. Um, and, and it was, it's just this like breathless delivery that yeah. is so it's really fun to, to read. It's fun to write. I, I hope, well, I hope it's fun as a reader. I mean, I mean, mm. to read it out loud, it's fun. And I'm very curious to see how the audio, um, oh, that's the, true. the yeah. narrators uh, tackle it. Let me ask you a, a parallel question to all this. You know, we've talked about where We Are Satellites began. I'm curious about where you started reading science fiction, because that, that tends to flow into what you do. And when I look at what you're doing and what you're doing in We Are Satellites, I see to me, a particular kind of approach to story. It's one that puts people and character first and idea, even though it's embedded in it as an underpinning, it's underpinning rather than foreground. I mean, we talk about pilots and all this kind of thing, but this isn't about how do you build and make and design a pilot and get it to work. It's how do people respond? So I'm curious, where did you, where did you start reading science fiction? What was your start in the field? Um, my, my start was uh, my father's FNSF magazines, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, the other magazines too, but, but FNSF is the one that, that was like in every bathroom in the house. And, uh, you know, like there were stacks so that you could go backwards. Um, and all of, all of Gardner's, uh, year's best, um, all of the Le Guin, um, short fiction. My dad has a lot of short fiction. So, so, um, Le Guin, Sturgeon, um, and and I also had a teacher who was big on the the very the humanist seventies stories. Mm -hmm. So, um, like the the ones that I remember, I know that for a fact I read for this for for this class. Very on, it must have been like fifth grade, maybe it was. It was Harrison Bergeron. It was uh, the uh, Omalas. It was of mist and grass and sand. It was the ship who sang. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had this this great list. So between my my father's collection, um, which was which was very uh, person oriented, also, uh, mm -hmm. and and that uh, and Judith stuff like that. Yeah, that was that was my introduction. And I think. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Uh, I was going to say. Well, you mentioned Sturgeon, and before before you even came on, Jonathan and I were wondering if there was some Sturgeon behind that, because he was one of the first great humanists and, and his, uh, his book, More Than Human, which deals from the point of view of people who are experiencing this change. And it, it, it strikes me that when you're dealing with changes, evolutionary changes or uh, technologically mediated evolutionary changes, you can write from the perspective of a thriller writer or you can write from the perspective of 
the character involved. I mean, the, the most heartbreaking story about experiencing technologically enhanced change is probably Flowers for Algernon. Um, and, and Flowers for Algernon worked because it's narrated by Charlie Gordon. The opposite of that, my, in my theory, which I'm making up as I'm going along right now, uh, 50 years ago was Michael Crichton's The Terminal Man. First big bestseller about brain implants was made into a movie with, I want to say, George Siegel. And it's just a Frankenstein story. It's just, if you do this, everything will go wrong. The guy will become a murderer. Um, and there's very little, very little human sympathy in a story like that. So it seems to me that when we look at those things, you're approaching it more from the Sturgeon, Le Guin, Mac- von the McIntyre, and, and, and that perspective of, of trying to get inside the minds of people who are experiencing these rather than treating them as objects. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the stories that I'm drawn to are the stories, the the human level on the ground, how does this affect things? And I can, like, I can kind of, like, I was a history major who who forgot every date that I was ever told. Like, like I was interested in, <laughs> in, you know, how things played out for people. And I think it's the same thing. I, I, I want... I want to know how it plays out for people, and I like the nuances. I like I like to explore the fact that that none of these things are all good or all bad, and and there are people who will absolutely benefit um, from just about any you know if you're not coming from the evil side of things, like like right. th- there are people who will benefit from everything. In Song for a New Day, like there were there were I wanted to make sure that there were it was clear that there are people who can't. Who can't get to concerts? Who like are you know? Who right now where we're sitting like probably get to go to a concert tonight that they wouldn't have gotten to go to? And yes, it's online, but they're getting to go to a show when um, uh, economically or accessibility wise, you know, there there are a hundred things that stand in the way of going to a show on any given night for people. Yeah, um, sure. Same with going to a con. Like the, I think there's been a lot of equalizing um, that's happened with with online cons, mm-hmm. and it'll be. Like I don't think that genie goes back in the bottle either. Um, I, I think we're, there's going to be some interesting hybrid models going forward. Oh, so, so yeah, it's all you, you can you can easily see the thriller version of this book. I know what the thriller version would be, and I wasn't interested in telling exactly. it exactly. And and I think to some extent you dialed back what the pilot can do. It's it's not uh, it's not a magic. It's it's not an onboard Wikipedia. It doesn't really make you more intelligent. It simply enables multitasking. And as you raise later in the book, multitasking may or may not really exist anyway. Right. I like I like the restrictions of working with within the realm of like almost plausible. So so yeah. I, I did spend some time talking to to people who know a lot about brains and saying um, it, it, partly in deciding exactly where it would go. Um, and the the cool thing was like I had this image of like a little dot at the temple, and and it turned out that the place that that you know one of these doctors I talked to said like the place that would make the most sense was actually a pretty direct access to that spot, and then yeah. and then what that spot does like working working in concert together both like where should it be and then um what what can you get from that spot what are what realistically right. could you stimulate in order to make something happen. Um, like, like my doctor friend said, yeah, if you want to, you can do, like, you know, you can do any of those things we've seen a hundred times in, in books. Like you right. can do the, the encyclopedia or the Siri in your head or, or, or whatever, but those things, because they're not plausible, like 
like you sure you can run away with those things but but having those restrictions gave me something to work with in in terms of this could be within reach like you you could make this happen kind of sort of also with with too much capability you're letting the technology take over the story at that point that too yeah you there's one thing that interested me about the book was the way that you structured the family the fact that you had two mothers in, 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 the, in, the, in the plot. Also that there was a difference in their income earning capability. And so there's a, all kinds of economic uh, inequalities and diversity there. How important was it in unpacking the idea behind We Are Satellites to look at the different implications of the story for different people from different demographic groups? I, I think I think that's part of my question of of you know, there is always someone who's helped. There's always someone who's harmed. I, I think you mm-hmm. part part of that is looking at the um, the economics of it, the the equity questions. Who will who will get this? Who will not? If you know, if they make it easier, why are they making it easier? Um, all all of those questions are fascinating to me. Um, so I do like the bigger picture questions, and then I like to paint them onto people uh, because I think they're the answers are more interesting when they are when they're case studies versus overviews. And yeah, well, you'd mentioned earlier that one issue that comes up in both novels is is what is now called ableism. I guess that's the only word we've got to go with it. But and it's a thing. But certainly, uh, the the uh, Sophia, the the, the the daughter, is suffering by simply being excluded from this world that seems to be uh, uh, seems to be completely unfair. And, and it is. It is a disability, but in a sense, you've given her a kind of mission in life resulting from her alleged disability as well. Yeah, she. she I mean, she takes on the political aspects of it. Um, right, she becomes she a politician. Very, yeah, she she takes it very personally, um, and I I very much did not want to make this a book where you know it, it, the the fact that she has epilepsy does play into the fact that she doesn't isn't able to get the pilot, but I didn't want um, her, her epilepsy to save her. I didn't want her epilepsy oh, to, yeah. um, to somehow like fix things to save the day. Uh, like it's, it's part of her life that she, that she deals with um, and, and part of her life that she has to deal with, with her parents also just negotiating her freedom as she gets older. Um, and, and I very much wanted it to be just a, a story of four people, one of one of whom happens to have epilepsy, one of whom, you know, has this extra layer of challenge that she's she's dealing with, but it's not the thing that that she's all about. No. The novel I think raises both novels and, and, and your short fiction as well, because I uh, I was thinking of, of, of the collection, you've more or less identified yourself as a writer of near future science fiction, which seems to be ha- it seems to have its own set of problems that other kinds of science fiction don't present. And I was just wondering if that's a choice you deliberately made or if you just found yourself more comfortable writing about what is essentially our world. One time I saw defined, uh, near future science fiction was defined by somebody as fiction that takes place within the lifetime of the reader or that incredibly could take place within the lifetime of the reader. Is that more or less how you're approaching it? Yeah, I don't even... I don't know that I even pro- approach it that consciously. Like I'm, I'm just interested because I'm not setting out to be necessarily only a near future writer. And like my short fiction has roamed about a little bit more. The the novel that I'm working on right now is going to stray from that a bit. 
Uh Um, But it's a playground that I like. Like, I think that there's a lot to be explored. I think it's where some of the most interesting questions you can ask lie because they're the ones that, that we, you know, we do end up encountering. And so if you're talking about like, Thing, not not cautionary tales, but but like things that you can explore that might make a difference to people. It's you know Jeff Vandermeer and his uh, you know his ecological stories. Like I, I think that there's there's sort of an activism underpinning those, and I don't I don't set out with an activism underpinning necessarily, but I think that there is something to be said for exploring exploring things before we experience them. I, I mean, isn't that like the beauty of science fiction? You can do it near and you can do it far. Like I could look at oh, yeah. what this world would look like a hundred years down the road once people, like if people had had their pilots then. But I think there were, there's so many other factors at that point. You start throwing, you have to throw in so many other colors that, that the palette changes. So you yeah. don't find yourself attracted to stories set a thousand years from now where you can just wipe the slate clean and start fresh. I can I can read them, but I I have not yet found the one I was dying to write. Like I, I like reading stories set on space stations and and that sort of thing. But but I don't. But the the problem I mean the problems still end up being these problems. So so yes, you can do the same thing there. Well, you can you can layer it all, but then you also have to invent a space station. And I'm more interested in in keeping it closer to home, I guess. Well, and, and kind of the compromise between near and far future, I suppose, is the generation starship story. And you've you've written one of those, at least that I know of, uh, that uh, is also a good story about music and about history and about memory and that sort of thing. But it's kind of in this limbo space that's not really a future, but it's it's not really different from now because it's a place that we build now and generations have to live within our structure. So it's uh, it's the one kind of science fiction that strikes me can be both near future and far future at the same time. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Because um, it, it is, they, they have to live within the structures we've created for them, and they can forge some new paths, but but in some ways they're limited. Um, uh, K.M. Sparrow has a phrase that he's coined for his work, which is alternate future, mm-hmm. which I okay. think is interesting, because his idea is that he um, like he, that frees him from saying, this is the path we will travel. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting way of looking at it. Cause I kind of say, this is a path we could travel, but I don't think about it as a will. I would have preferred that we hadn't decided to travel the pandemic, route, <laughs> for example, but, but it is certainly a path we could travel. And, and I guess that's, I mean, that's part of the fun of near future to me is, is saying, I think I can create a future that could happen now let's see why we should or shouldn't do that, or which parts can we take from this and and as good lessons, and which ones should we take as cautionary tales? Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, that that in the in, in the case of the current novel, there will be some enormously popular technological innovation that involves humans' bodies that some corporation will make a lot of money with. And you're right, starting with the iPod and probably going back before that to Walkman and that sort of thing. Uh, there's always been that kind of technological adjunct to the body. So the question is not, will that happen, but how it will happen? You, you came up with one particular technology out of thousands of different technologies. And I guess what find, what I find interesting about your kind of near future science fiction, as opposed to the obviously this is going to happen sort of thing, is that we don't really need to be told by science fiction writers anymore that Miami is going to be an archipelago 
We know that. Uh, it's just there. It's a given. It's not a. It, it's not an awful warning. It's just part of the world which we're in. It's just the part that hasn't happened yet. Um, that kind of thing is almost a given these days. It's not a prediction. It's simply a, a given of the world we're living in. Thinking about how technology changes us is still has, it seems to me, uh, an almost infinite variety of possibilities. Yeah, and I think it's very much colored by the by your own interests, the corner of the world you want to you want to paint. Um, I mean, you can do this, you know, very close. Like I, I enjoyed being in the head of one family and looking at everything from there. And it's a very, you know, it's one corner of the world, and there's a hundred other ways you can explore mm-hmm. even just this technology. Um, mm-hmm. Telling telling a pandemic story through the eyes of one musician is because I, you know, music is is important to me, but that story could be told a hundred different ways too. So I think, I think part of it is just, yeah, yeah. The, the technology is going, is going to be with us and we can't decide, uh, we can't, we can't see the ways that it will change us or that we will change it or that we will be altering the world. But you can, if you play in these little corners, there's, uh, you can, you can get really specific in a, in a way that I find, uh, delicious. But you can you can raise issues that are also very current issues. One of the things that sort of lurks in the background of of we are satellites, but it's not a major player, is the government. Um, and and I think one of the things that when I was uh, reading, I don't know, uh, some of the stuff about implants, that uh, maybe maybe this is something I'd read in an interview with you with you that mechanical implants aren't nearly as well controlled as uh, as, as pharmaceuticals are. Uh, so to some extent. The government doesn't really have to play that big a role because there aren't the laws there really to regulate this sort of thing. Yeah, no, that is absolutely true. The the laws the laws about uh, medical devices um, are shocking, and the, the the stuff at least in the U.S. I can't speak for other countries, but mm. what has to be um, what has to be reported versus what doesn't, like the fact that they don't have to uh, like adverse events don't have to be. Uh, reported mm-hmm. um there, there's there's all these things that are absolutely shocking about the medical device world um the fact that they if there's something that's similar to another device that's already on the market there there's there's an effect where it can sort of be ushered in under the same um patent without new tests really uh, oh wow uh, yeah. and, and for, for slightly different uses um so yeah yeah they, they can like they can change little things. And so, so yeah, there it's, it's even worse than what I've got in the book. Um, (laughs) It's absolutely shocking. And um, I, yeah, I, I don't know if I should tell people look into this more or avoid it. If you think you're going to need anything in the near future, (laughs) because it's, it's really shocking. And it does mean that, you know, the government, like, I think like I've, I've been privy to some of the, like I've done some lobbying for, um, for laws for uh, disability related stuff, epilepsy related mm-hmm. stuff, and um, and I like I see the how slowly things change from that perspective, and and the ways that things work, and the negotiations that go on, and then I see what's actually already on the books and what isn't, and yeah, it's it's scary already. It's uh, th- this could easily have been a, a totally uh, like a thriller of some kind. It could have been a horror story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it would still be true. Like you could write a true horror story. Um, well, I mean, it, yeah. it, it's fascinating. The, the, I was trying to think, and this is a 
this is because I try to think weirdly, I guess. I was trying to think of other stories in which people have lights that go on in their heads. Um, and I, I don't think that that happens in A.E. Van Vogt, although it might. But the one that came to mind treats a similar idea in a completely slapstick and unfortunately kind of awfully sexist way is a novel by Brian Aldiss called The Primal Urge, in which the government, some British government, requires people to have an implant in their forehead, which lights up whenever they're sexually attracted to somebody. And pretty much he goes exactly in the direction you'd expect him to go. There's there's some political satire, there's stuff in it, but it's it's also a way of revealing that you take a basic idea of putting something, and you could just write a dozen different kinds of stories, right? A techno, techno thriller, horror story, uh, murder mystery, comedy. Yeah, you can, you can do the murder mystery pretty easily. Do the murder mystery easily, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, there's any, or, or the the romance, although that doesn't sound like a romance. <laughs> no, it's not exactly a romance, but it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. I mean, there, there are suggestions about that. Speaking of murder mysteries, you wrote one of the oddest murder mysteries uh, that I think I've ever read, oh. in, which, in which you go to a convention of yourself. It's true. Yeah, I've written a few murder mysteries at this point, so I was waiting to see which one, but then you said oddest, so I knew which one. Oh, But you followed all the Agatha Christie rules in it. Yeah, that was the fun part of that one, um, was, was I got to, and then they were not it. But Well, one thing I wanted to ask you as well was, you've been publishing for about 10 years now. You've got a couple of dozen short stories out, a collection, two novels. Is your body of work anything like you imagined it might have been when you started with the idea of maybe writing one day? Oh, when I started with my idea of maybe writing one day, I was like, 12 or 13 and sending stories to uh, um to amazing and to fantasy and science fiction and and asimovs and um i just i thought that was what you were supposed to do with stories i couldn't even quite picture it, like that they would be published but I, I thought you were supposed to finish a story and then send it to a magazine because that was clearly where where stories went and and then at some point i got the idea that it would be really cool to have a collection and i actually i i think i'm not very good at picture maybe it's the near future thing like i can i can see the near future of having a story published but i wasn't able to like project um i wasn't i wasn't doing the like octavia butler style like imaginings of of this is how it will be mm-hmm. um i i did know that i wanted a collection but then i went off and did other things in the meantime and i came back and um i just wanted to get published in magazines again so so by the time i came to fiction 10 years ago that was mostly the only goal and and i've just sort of let things happen uh mm-hmm. and and let the career shape itself I, I i i can't really say that i've been i think there there are people who can design something very purposefully and i've been uh letting a combination of luck and interest and and something else drive it um and is that overlap with with your music career as well? I mean, trying to find the time to focus on what you're doing because obviously, I mean, writing takes time where you sit down in a spot and do your thing, and I, you can't, I would imagine, quite do both at the same time. No, I've, I mean, my music has suffered uh, basically for the last ten years since I started doing this. I have, um, I have an album. I have the master sitting right here next to me right now that I'm supposed to deal with. Um, getting out the door, I, I have a date in mind that I refuse to say out loud, but I actually think I'm going to do it this time. Um, I the the first half of my of my music career, I I got lucky and had 
again, like, like things were sort of shaped by, by this weird string of events. And so I, I did end up having a record label very early on that did a lot of, you know, I didn't have to do the, the hunting and the, mm. the things happened in a strange order for me. And I think that's, that's probably the consistent thing for both of these careers. Um, so, okay. so I had a, I had a lot of good luck with, with music and um, I have kind of, let that slide entirely. And uh, also my, uh, my drummer for my band passed away last year. So, so even before COVID, like we were already uh, having a little bit of trouble envisioning the future in that way too. Like, uh, like we had started talking to his brother about maybe that his brother wanted to take over and I would still love to see that happen at some point. But um, uh, yeah, I, I think that's a long answer to the fact, to the, question I'm, I'm not doing a whole lot of music i do have an album that, that at some point in the very near future will come out again that'll be the fourth album and uh, i think i'm a little better at sitting down and doing writing it's probably the other part mm-hmm. of well, the other you, to that if, question. if you feel bad about the, the music suffering because of the writing your music your album was like 15 or 20 years ago wasn't the first one it was um, the first one was 20 years ago 20 yeah. years ago so you could just say that while you were letting your writing suffer on behalf of your music for that deck. Right. That's absolutely true. Yeah. That was a decade of music and I put aside the fiction for that entire decade. So, so that is what happened. I think it's like a, a seesaw and I'm not sure that there's a balance to it. Um, is is there a crossover? Have, have your music fans taken to your fiction and do your absolutely. readers take to your music? Yeah. Yeah. There's been great crossover. People have, have been very, uh, very willing to follow. And I think it helps that I've written music fiction and I've written, oh, yeah. And I, uh, I've got songs that appeal to to reader, science fiction readers. <laughs> um, not they're not. It's not that they're filk, but they do satisfy. I, I approach them both from from a storytelling perspective, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so so yeah, I think I think that is true. But I'm I'm much better at being disciplined about fiction, which is part of I think why why this decade has has been better with fiction is that I can sit down and make. Uh, writing happen even when I don't particularly want to um or you know I I can I can get myself into that mode more easily than I can get myself to music if I don't feel like making music no so actually Gary referred to the notes at the end of the book earlier on and about which of the four characters you use so I guess a logical question to throw out would be one of two first (laughs) which of the four characters are you and are you a multitasker uh I am a terrible multitasker, which is probably <laughs> part of this book. Um, I write myself great to-do lists, and those help tremendously. But, but yeah, I'm not great at shifting gears. I, ha- I have to come up with a plan, and it is a full shift of gears constantly. I don't, I, um, I'm not good at moving from one thing to another seamlessly. Um, and in terms of which of the characters am I... I don't actually think that I can answer that question because I think I can inhabit a little. I I, I am a little tech shy, so I, mm-hmm. I can say I'm probably not Julie. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess probably I'm closest to Val, but there, there's parts of um, parts of me there, um, in the like Jewish like in the in the Passover Seder. There's the the four questions, and the four questions are uh, sometimes you say, or not the four questions, the four the four children or the four sons mm-hmm. or the four daughters, mm-hmm. depending on your your tradition. And these four kids are supposed to ask these questions, like why uh, why does this matter? 
to us? Why does this matter to you? And supposedly one is wise because he says to us and one is wicked because she says to you. Um, but, but there's one drawing of those four, four children that that's always appealed to me. It's kind of a, a cut paper version in which there's four colors of paper and someone has like taken the torso from one and put it on another and taken the heart from one and put it on another. So they end up being, uh, four, four people with, you know, with maybe a little bit more of one than another, but ultimately they're all a mix of those things. So, so I I probably think I've taken little bits of little bits of me and put it in them or little bits of them and put them in me. But yeah. The is, is the multitasking thing still an issue when you're writing multiple things? Are you like, I, I'm going to write a novel now and, a, and I can't you know, stop to write on short, uh, a short story? Or can you uh, shift around in that space? I can, I can write a couple of different things at once. I don't mean like instantaneously at once. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't have a pilot. Um, no. <laughs> but but I, I can like work on a novel in the morning and, and a story in the afternoon. Um, but yeah, yeah. So I guess that's the answer. I can do that. I can, if, if I'm really immersed in a novel, I may be, that may keep pulling me towards it. But then if I get a story idea, that'll pull me back the other way. I, I can, I, I think I am capable of both. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. the balance on that gets off a little bit too. Um, I've been teaching this semester. I'm a really slow reader. So all mm-hmm. that and critiquing definitely slowed me down on the, on all kinds of fiction, but, um, well, there are, different, there are different kinds of multitasking, uh, even within the novel. For example, uh, I what you're describing to me is somebody you you probably aren't a multitasker in the way that your character Julie has to be working within a political structure, working within a an office where a dozen different things come through every day. Uh, and and I, I I certainly wouldn't be that kind of multitasker, even though if you're in that job, you have no choice. So to some extent, she's pulled in a different direction. What interested me about, and there are a lot of interesting relationships between the various characters in the novel, but between Julie, who works for a a politician, basically, and Sophie, who becomes a political activist, you've got two different kinds, two different models for how to work in politics. Uh, And they're radically different models, and they, they pretty much put the mother and daughter at odds with each other for much of the novel. Which are you? Are you the are you the uh, revolutionary uh, uh, that that Sophie almost becomes, or somebody who tries to work within the system as her mom thinks she has to do? I, I think there there are. I'm going to sort of ride the fence on that one too. I, I think there are reasons to do both. I think there there are problems that can't be solved from within the system, and I think there are problems that can be solved um, when when people are doing both at once. And I, I think we can see examples of those things everywhere. Um, Having said that, I don't multitask well. That was, in fact, my job. Like I have, like I've had the oh. job, and and I held it for a long time. Where I was answering, uh, where I was doing um, casework, and I was uh, working on legislation, and um, I was also the person who was supposed to drop everything and answer the phone for information calls. Um, uh, for it, like, I was an epilepsy hotline, and. Uh. And then I also uh, was running a grant for much of that time where, where people would call and say, I need this. And I would either find them resources or I would um, get them into our grant program. Um, and so every day was a constant, this is what I'm going to do. But the phone calls came constantly. And so you would start doing one thing and then you would switch. So, so I've seen what you can do within the system. I, I've 
like I've worked on legislation and tried to get it passed and tried to get it passed. And, and oh. it is so frustrating um, when, when those, ref- you know, when, when people are refusing for reasons that seem ludicrous, um, when you've got like really common sense legislation and, and they're just, I mean, they're playing politics with it, yeah. you know? Mm. And, um, so I can see the arguments for, for doing it some other way. And, and for some of these things, there is another way for some of them th- there isn't. Um, well, I mean, it's one of the things that makes the the novel work so well as in, in terms of the four characters is that when we're within Sophie's point of view, we completely see where she's coming. And when we're in Julie's point of view, we can see why they're at odds with one another. One of the things that you could have done, and I thought other writers might have, is you've got four more or less equal. Actually, David doesn't get as much screen time as the other characters do. But none of the characters get a first person. And I thought that's interesting. Nobody is privileged uh, in these uh, various viewpoints. And that must have been a deliberate, deliberate decision on your part. Oh, yeah, I wanted to do that this time. Uh, I had done the the first person and third person for Song for a New Day. Right. And uh, I actually, I really liked doing that and I thought it worked fine. But but I wanted, I did want these four to feel equal. And I think once you have that, um, that first person character in there, people tend to think that that's the person you right. want to direct their attention toward. Unless you have the horrible, unreliable, venal first-person narrator who, who nobody else catches on to. <laughs> so I guess one question to ask, I mean, We Are Satellites is going to be out in the world this coming week. What else wow. is out in the world? I know you've got a new story out on Uncanny. Uh, what, 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 what else is attracting you now? What are you working on? So, yes, yeah, so there's the new story in Uncanny. There is one coming from Tor.com, I think, in October, a short story uh, with Ellen, um, which, isn't, which isn't a horror story, um, mm-hmm. but uh, it's, it's a, uh, I, I don't, it's kind of a Jonathan Carolly is my, cool. what I'm hoping is that it's Jonathan Carolly. It's, it's, a, it's a historical story based on based on a true event and some fan, fantastical liberties I took with it. Um, and that kind of fits into all the research that I've been doing for this novel that I've been waiting to write for a little while, <laughs> um, which is um, the reason the reason I wanted to do We Are, uh, we Are Satellites before this one uh, was because I knew I would end up having to write We Are Satellites on a deadline, and I knew I could write that one on a deadline. And I had this other idea in mind that was just taking up so much research time. And I love research. It's mm-hmm. the, the, That's part of why I went into history. I can really get stuck in, in research and I don't mind it one bit. And um, and so I had this, I have this novel that I'm working on that I wanted to give all the time to and um, all the research that it wanted. And, and so, so that's the other thing that I'm playing with now. I'm, I'm at like 15,000 words. So I'm, I'm still always... Well, actually, one thing that occurs to me listening to you talk about that is how much pressure do you feel to produce now? Because, I mean, there's, there's that perennial thing that happens with any creative person. You work for an, an awfully long time before the first thing appears, particularly the first novel or the first album, whatever it might be, and you pour all these ideas into it, and then you have to do the next thing. Now, sometimes that means, like, if a band comes off tour and knocks out a pretty dodgy second album and goes back on tour. Obviously, in this case, you've had We Are Satellites, which is – a very strong book sitting there ready to do. How are you feeling about the pressure of doing this next thing and the timing and all that kind of stuff? I, I stepped outside of the timing question for this one. I think um, I've so far I haven't been asked to produce anything on a schedule that I couldn't keep. 
Mm-hmm. The closest that I came last last spring was the most pressure I've ever felt in my entire life, and it was entirely my own doing. I still had my my uh, part time day job. I was teaching for the first time because I had said yes to this this guest um, guest professor gig that seemed like it would fit that I could do those things at the same Mm. time and I didn't account for the fact that I would have edits due also on this book um so it was the edits and two part-time jobs and then and then it did turn out that we were like pushing for legislation in the day job so so like that that was supposed to only be part-time but it was taking over everything and I felt like I had three full-time jobs and then they all moved indoors because of the pandemic and they were Mm -hmm. all in chair and that was just it like I was I was so burnt out at the end of that um but I had built in this time for myself where I said for I, I didn't I, I in my head I barely did anything last fall um when I when I actually do the math like like and I say but I only wrote this much and I only did this much research and I only got two stories out the door it, it ended up actually being a fair bit but I did mostly kind of take the fall off and the book that I'm working on now I'm working on on my own schedule. So I, I don't feel pressure to that something has to be out like next year. And maybe that's because I'm writing short fiction and novels. Like I feel like I do have stuff coming out. It's not mm-hmm. like I will mm-hmm. disappear from the picture if I don't like, I think I've still got enough coming out that, that, um, that I'm not, I'm not doing myself a disservice, but I don't think I can be the novelist who has a full length novel out every year. I think that would I, I, it's just not, not the writer that I am. Yeah. I don't think that's a natural thing for any writer. It's, it's, it's something that happens. Uh, we actually, a couple of years ago, uh, asked William Gibson about the same thing. And, and his reaction was, it's something that only happens with science fiction and mystery writers, but literary novelists aren't expected to produce every, every year. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of the people who I look up to in this field are the people who who put out a novel when they when they have a really good idea exactly. for a novel. Yeah. Um, so, well, I think also that if you look at actual careers, that, that as you get past about that second third book position, where you have burnt through that initial thing, and also as depending on age, as your life changes, as your life becomes more comp- complicated and complex, doing a book a year is not a thing that people most do. It's like a year, year and a half, two years, suddenly there's an odd thing where there's two books close together, then there's a long period of time. I, I think because the things I'm writing are mostly standalones, that helps too. Like the, that, um, I, think it, I think if I was in a series frame of mind, which I have never been in, but you know, maybe someday. Um, I, I think that the, the, you know, like the, the timeline changes, people want to, the publishing mm. has to want to see the next one and the next one. Um, but okay. yeah, I don't usually have those ideas. Well, the other, well, the, other okay. the other model for doing that sort of thing, I guess, is to have not really a series, but a continuing character. And you can have it both ways. I mean, the Jack Reacher series just jumps back and forth in time all over the place. And it's clear that he writes a novel that he wants to write. And he's got one character, but it's not, I think, anything that you could work out a chronology for. It's not like uh, writing the tenth volume of the Wheel of Time, which has to be out there because you know your your readers will be at the door with the pitchforks if you don't have it on time. Yeah, and and the the really interesting things being done with uh, novellas right now, uh, mm, the, right. with the Murderbot books being, you know, Martha Wells can kind of pick where she wants, where in that storyline she wants to tell the next story. Right, exactly. And, uh, Sean and McGuire's Wayward Children um, stuff, where where 
she can tell a story about the school, but then she can tell a backstory and then she can tell a continuing adventure and then she can pick a side character and write about them instead. Um, but, yeah, I think there are options out there. There does seem to be a lot of options, but what, what is, is less of an option is continuing. We know we're keeping you from your dinner. We're <laughs> almost at the at, at, at the top of the hour. So it's probably the right time to say thank you, Sarah Pinsker, for joining us today. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for a great conversation. And yeah. to con- remind everybody out there that We Are Satellites is in your favorite bookstore, probably right now, in fact, because I think it's due out early next week is the actual formal publication date, which means based on my experience of when, when I was in the States, it's probably in stores as we speak. I signed so, you, <laughs> so, you, so, so you can get your own copy and I strongly recommend you do. But Gary, for the moment. For the moment until next week, uh, this has been the Could Street Podcast.